Good morning. Well, I didn't want to change any of the lectionary readings today, so I'm going to kind of go old school, kind of the way we used to, and uh, read the text, or at least part of it. I'm going through uh, Job 40 and 41, but I won't read. I'll just read chapter 40, just to give us an overview of that, and then we'll go through the rest. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For this shade, for, for his shade, the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he isn't frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Let's pray. Father, there's much here. You had these words recorded for the good of your people, for your glory. And I ask that this morning you would be glorified in this, in what I say and what we hear. Shape our hearts. And as always, we ask that you would direct our hearts and our minds and our wills toward you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we took a look at Job's answer, at least his first response, uh, God's answer to Job in, in chapter 38. Now, you know the story. Job was suffering greatly after the accuser assured Yahweh that Job would never serve God if he took away his blessings. So Yahweh gave him permission to take everything but his life. And after much suffering and dialogue with his misguided friends, Job began to question. And then he began to demand a hearing, an opportunity to confront the Almighty. And he got that hearing in the form of chapter 38, Yahweh interrogating him 
with humbling, pressing, even sarcastic questions that put Job in his place, reminding him mostly of the point of that response was Job is a limited creature with limited knowledge, and he is no match for the infinite God, the infinite creator, Yahweh, who set the boundaries of creation and also directs all of creation and holds everything by the power of his hand. See, the reason for God's strong response was the nature of Job's questions were actually accusing God of wrongdoing. Just an example of that is Job 9. Go back to Job 9, verse 24. This is what Job says. Job says, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? He covers the faces of the judges. Who? He's talking about God. And if it's not him, who is it? It can only be God. Job is accusing God of blocking justice. He's accusing him of abusing his power. On one end, Job's questions are an example of our own nature of needing answers to know, to understand, to have fairness, to have real fairness as we see it, as we understand it, real justice as we see it and understand it. But it's also an example of human sinfulness, even human arrogance, and pride to suggest that we actually know better than the Almighty. And he approached God with these accusations. And sometimes we do it as well, approaching God with these accusations to correct the things that we feel are out of order. It was a long time ago, and of course, this goes on today. talked about the contemporary Christian musician last week, Here's somebody who was a little more shocking to me. It was a former pastor. His name is John Loftus. You might have heard of him. Um, He actually graduated from Trinity Divinity School, which is a very uh, well-known and and reputable divinity school. It's where William Lane Craig taught or teaches, uh, as well as D.A. Carson, some uh, very well-known and reputable theologians who we quote, I quote pretty frequently. But this is what he said. After he did his, all his research, he came to this point, John Loftus came to this point where he became an atheist. And this is one of the things he said in, in regard to his denial that God exists. It, it's this. What God should have done, says Loftus, is to present himself to the world with incontrovertible evidence. For example, in the form of overwhelming substantiation. For the gospel records are more directly, he could just speak to everyone directly. He could be a voice in everyone's head. I mean, I like that. (laughs) I do. I'm sure you would like that too. But that's not how God's doing it. But but, but Loftus is saying, this is how he has to do it if I'm going to believe in him. Because what I see him doing doesn't match up to my standards. If it's not done my way, then he can't be God. I'm out. I hate to bring up another Christian musician, but Marty Sampson, who was part of Hillsong, back in 2019, he left the faith. And his questions were, 
Why is the Bible full of contradictions? He posted this on, on Instagram. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. And then he talks about Christians. And he says, Christianity, it's not for me. I'm not in it anymore. Now, I don't want to belittle these these questions and these struggles because they are real struggles. These are truly voices and questions of those who are struggling with God and the idea of justice, the idea of fairness, goodness, and righteousness. These questions are based on what appears to go against true justice and fairness. It's what Job was doing. Was he hurting? Yes. Was he suffering, despairing? Yes. One thing that distinguishes Job, when I think about it, with with, with the other ones I mentioned, one thing that that distinguishes Job is Job didn't have anywhere else to go. Kind of like the disciples. said, where else will we go? (laughs) You have the words of eternal life. For Job, he had nowhere else to go but God, and he needed his answers from the Almighty. He he hung in there the, 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 the whole time. His belief in God didn't seem to wane. It was the character of God. So now in chapter 40, Yahweh comes in with round two. We had round one last week, and now round two begins of his response to Job's complaints and his questions. But we do hear from Job first in chapter 40, as you noticed. But first... The Lord says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answers. And he says, verse 4, behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I'm humbled. I'm humbled. You would think that would be it. Sounds like he shut Job down. But what does God do? Keep those loins girded, boy. I will question you, and you make it known to me. When he says dress for action, that's what he's saying. Gird up your loins, just like last week. Dress for action, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Chapter 40, verse 8 is key here. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right Some translations say, will you discredit my justice? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? It's not unreasonable for us as humans to think things are unfair when we see things that are happening. Think about this building in Miami. Is that just unbelievably tragic and why even if it's a if if it's a a screw-up by the building inspectors they're responsible for all these innocent people all these people who had nothing to do with this why did that happen how many people are getting shot in st louis how many will get shot today how many are getting shot just on the freeway anymore the gun violence is outrageous And people who have no involvement at all are getting shot and killed. How fair is that? 
How right is that? It just doesn't seem right. And so it leads us to say the same thing. It leads us to say, Lord, what are you doing? Now, when, when, jo- when God answered Job the first time, he focused on his creatureliness. He focused on who he was as a creature and who God was as creator. Now, this next, has a, this next response has a different shift. And you'll notice here that he starts to deal more with salvation and righteousness. Here we go in verse 9. This, this 9 through 14 is kind of a section here where God is asking Job. There's questions in this, and I'll explain that in a second. Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Now, these statements can also, are, are also the way they're structured in the Hebrew, have questions behind them. It could be read in this way. Can you adorn yourself with majesty and dignity? Can you clothe yourself with glory and splendor? Do you even have the, the majestic garments to put on in order to be the judge here? Can you pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him? Can you look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand? If you could do all these things, Job, then I, Yahweh, will acknowledge to you that your right hand can save you. He's saying to Job, do you have the wisdom? Do you have the knowledge? Do you have the power to render true justice Not only for yourself, Job, but for everyone. But for all creation, not just the people, but for all my creation. Do you have it in you to do this? Do you understand? Do you understand what true wickedness really is, Job? Do you really understand what true pride is? And can you save yourself and others from that? And then he shifts. He goes into verse 15 and we have two animals being described here. Do you ever find that weird? I mean, he described the animals when he was talking about creation, but now he's talking more in, in, in the context of righteousness and salvation, and he brings out the behemoth and the leviathan. Now, um, i got to say, as, as I look at commentaries on this, these verses probably had the most varied comments from commentators as to what they were and what this was about. It's, it's really challenging to kind of sift through this, so I'm not going to be too, you know, hard and heavy on any of this, but I think the, the, the main point here is clear, and I think all the commentators agree on the main point. So I'm not going to get into what I think behemoth is, except I'll mention a few ideas here. So... Um, most commentators will say it's describing a hippopotamus or an elephant. That's fine. Um, when I read this description, honestly, it doesn't sound like a hippopotamus. Um, not, all, not completely. Uh, you know, the tail thing, you know, kind of throws you, you know, because a hippopotamus tail is not that majestic, you know, like a cedar. I don't think of that, you know. Or even an elephant's tail is not like that. So I, I'm, I'm just not sure. Um, but what's interesting is behemoth is, is this is this is a word in the plural in the Hebrew, and it's really referring to a beast. And when it's in the plural like this, it's 
looking at, it's, it's, mentioned, it's uh, speaking of the beast as, as the par, beast par excellence. And so this is a majestic, a, a large beast, almost like a monster. And it's mentioned in 73.22, Psalm 73.22, not as a behemoth, but as a beast. And this is how it's mentioned. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I was like a behemoth toward you. So it's not really talking about I was like a hippopotamus toward you. And it doesn't really hold the, 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 the feel of that. But I was a beast toward you. Now we can kind of get that. And I, I, I kind of lean toward that, that this is more of a symbolic animal here that, uh, that, that God is talking about. So let's read. He says, Behold, behemoth. Behold this beast, monster, which I made as I made you. Now he does say he made it. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. It talks about his great power. He is the primordial or the, the first of the works or the ways of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. I think that means pretty much let the creator be the one who rules over him. Commentators are really all over the place on that one too. In fact, one commentator said, I don't even know what this means. <laughs> so I was comforted by that. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds in the marsh. So he's describing this, this behemoth. He's describing this beast. He's describing its life. He's out in creation. He's being fed by creation. He is resting under the, the lotuses of creation. And then the point comes home. Job, can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you trap him? Can you harness him, in other words? Can you harness this beast that represents the forces that oppose me? Because it's believed that the beast, uh, the, the behemoth and the Leviathan, after, after God talked to Job about harnessing the pride of the world, harnessing the pride, can you, with the arm of God, put that arm down on the pride of the world? Now, he used the behemoth and the Leviathan to kind of expand on that. Now, the Leviathan in, in chapter thir- or verse 13 now, uh, of, um, I'm sorry, uh, in, in chapter 41, Leviathan seems more of a mythical or symbolic animal or monster. Now, the, the, the commentators will say that's a crocodile. Once again, that just ruins it for me. If I'm just thinking of a crocodile in this, I don't think it, with this epic poetry that they're just talking about a crocodile. I think they want to create a greater image because of what he's describing. The immense force of the pride and the sin and the wickedness that's in the earth. It's represented here by Leviathan. And that's not the only place in Scripture. You have in, in Psalm 74... Verse 13 and 14, this is what it says. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. Talking about God's delivering Israel. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. The heads of Leviathan. You gave them as food for the creatures of the wilderness. This is symbolic of Pharaoh's power, of Egypt. 
And this is what God did. God crushed the Leviathan because he's God. Isaiah 27, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. Punishing a crocodile? I don't think so. He's punishing Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea, that force that is against Israel, that is against God's people. He's going to slay it. Why? Because he's God. Because he is the righteous creator, God. Another place I see Leviathan is earlier in Job. He mentions it, and he mentions it not as a crocodile or as an animal, but as a Leviathan that stands for something greater and more ominous. Job 3.8, when he's saying, let the day that I was born be cursed, he says, let those who curse it curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan, the one that will destroy. So now when we see in chapter 41, when God says to Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? I like this. Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons? Then he says this later on in verse 8. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You won't do it again. Verse 10, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me, Yahweh says? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And then he continues. He goes on more. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer ground? He's building the image of this Leviathan. This Leviathan is impenetrable. There's fire in his breath. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The strength is immeasurable. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. On earth, verse 33, there is not his like a creature without fear. In verse 34, he sees everything that is high. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Where did this start? Where did this passage, uh, this passage start? Job, can you crush the prideful? Can you harness the prideful? See, the point of the behemoth and the Leviathan is that they are too powerful for Job to harness. And, you know, he talks about behemoth in this kind of peaceful way and the way he, he's resting and, and, and being fed by the hills and resting under the lotus. But the point is, if the Lord lifted his control, if the Lord lifted his hand from the behemoth, from the Leviathan, it would not be just chaos. It would be chaotic suffering. Suffering without a purpose.
The answer, of course, when he says, can you harness the Leviathan, is clearly no. Job recognizes that, and later in 42, he repents, and he's restored. But let's remember where this all started in chapter 40, chapter 40 here. The way God rebuked Job is interesting. He says, will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Will you, Job, condemn me that you may be justified? I think we do that all the time. At least we try. We want to condemn God's ways to make ourselves right. That's what's happening with with all these quotes that we read. That's what was happening with Job. Condemning God. You're wrong. I'm right. I'm preserving my righteousness. I'm preserving my, my ego, my integrity, whatever you want to call it. Did Job sin? Absolutely. He stood condemned before God. As he stood there before God, he stood condemned. And he knew it. And he repented. What's ironic about this, I didn't really see this in any commentaries. I didn't mention this, but I actually got it from Tim Keller and, and, and one other preacher I heard mention this. What's ironic is that this is exactly what had to happen for Job to truly be justified. Was that God would be condemned that he would be justified. Because later in time, God came in the flesh. In the midst of all of this unrighteousness. Of the arrogant, unrepentant humanity. All standing condemned. All standing condemned before God and the word that created all things the word that was from the beginning with God and was God created all things for him and by him all things were created that word became flesh he became flesh and he dwelt among us and then he came for the purpose of being condemned he took our condemnation He took Job's condemnation. All of the remarks, all the rebellion that Job used to sin against God, that was nailed to the cross. That made Job righteous. God came to be condemned so that we would have righteousness. He who knew no sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Everything was out of order. Everything. And when Christ, the creator, the son of God, the word made flesh came, he came to be condemned, to give us our righteousness, to make all things right, to put everything back in order. I'm pausing because I'm trying to think where to go from there. The reason why I preached on Job these last two weeks is because 
this has been kind of burdening me. Um, knowing people who are suffering, knowing people who are questioning God, knowing people who are having difficulty and hearing about so many people who are leaving the faith, who are wrestling, but not having an arena in which they can wrestle well. And people have said, people have asked me a few times, where's grace and peace going? Where's our church going? We talked a little bit about it in the elder training today. I talked with a few of you. What's my hope for grace and peace? I don't know. I don't have any kind of a mission statement. Not planning on that right now. But what I do have is, is one of my hopes. I would love to see this be a church where we are able to struggle with our questions, with our wrestlings together. As safely as possible. Sometimes those struggles aren't safe. But to have a place where somebody can come in and say, I don't know what God's doing. I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. I don't know if I believe in this resurrection. I don't know where my faith is going. My hope is that we can be a place where we say, come on in. Let's talk. Let's just be together. I may not have an answer for you. You may not get an answer. Job didn't get an answer. But I pray that this will be a place where we can grow together in Christ and come to wrestle with God together and come to know the Lord together. You know, this, this, uh, what, what attracted us to grace and peace a long time ago was the fact that it was founded on, from these people from Labrie. These people from Labrie who were used to inviting struggling people, questioning people who are questioning God, people who lost their faith, and offering them hospitality, offering them a place where they could struggle together and grow and maybe continue to struggle for a while. But my hope is that we can revive some of that at Grace and Peace, not only for the people here, but for the people in our community who see that we're the only church around, and if they have questions, I pray that we can at least help them wrestle wrestle with them, and just enjoy growing in community together. Thinking about this, what if we had like three or four events that allow people to come and hear? I mean, think about the people we have here at Grace and Peace who can have these discussions, who can lead these discussions. We are a gifted church. But to have some of these events where we can talk, where we can just let people openly struggle, And we get to learn more about each other. We get to learn more about our God, his faithfulness, and his grip on us. I pray that we can revive that. I pray that we can move in a a direction where we can begin thinking about that and discussing that more. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your church. I do thank you for grace and peace. I thank you that you've led us here and everyone who is here. I thank you. Lord, lead us as you will. Humble us. Help us to grow in grace. Help us to grow in mercy toward one another. And help us to grow in a greater understanding 
of who you are, your greatness, and our limitness. <laughs> limitlessness, I guess. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.